Let us pray together. Father, we ask that You would give us faith. Faith to do great wonders through the prayers that we offer to You. Prayers that would bring great blessing upon Your faithful chosen people and prayers of judgment against Your enemies. But Father, even as we pray for You to come and to bless and to judge, we ask that You would help us to have forgiving spirits that we might forgive those who have wronged us so that when You come in judgment, we may not be judged as your enemies, but we might be forgiven even as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Father, we pray now that your word would speak to us truth and wisdom. Father, I pray that today we would look all the more fully and faithfully to Christ Jesus as our King and our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. People sometimes wonder, how did a nice guy like Jesus end up on a cross? I mean, you wouldn't crucify Mr. Rogers, would you? And so why did Jesus get crucified? Well, actually, I'm not sure that Jesus was so nice. Certainly, uh, He was not nice by our standards of niceness. Uh, He was always loving, but he was not necessarily nice. Uh, And I think we actually see that here in Mark uh, chapters 11 through 14. Uh, We see in these chapters in Mark's Gospel why Jesus got crucified. In these chapters, we see Jesus as a credible first century Jew. We see him in his context, but we also see him as an eminently crucifiable first century Jew. In these chapters, we see a Jesus who loves others as no one has ever loved, and yet a Jesus who managed to make enemies who hated him as much as anyone has ever been hated. We see a Jesus here who is the ultimate prophet. And as a prophet, he announces judgment on Israel. He announces the end of the old world. The world's last night is fast approaching But he also announces the arrival of a new world, the dawning of a new creation. We see Jesus here as a prophet, but we see too that Jesus is more than a prophet, indeed more than a mere man. He is the representative Israelite, but he is also Israel's God. He does what Israel was to do, living a life of perfect love and truth and faithfulness and service. He goes about speaking truth and doing good. But He also does what Israel's God has promised to do. He he does what only God can do. He rescues His people from sin and death. Jesus comes as the true Israelite to do what Israel should have done, but did not. He comes as Israel's God to do what only God can do. Jesus is God on a rescue mission. Jesus is God sent on a rescue mission. And so He not only announces judgment when He gets to Jerusalem, He also bears judgment when He gets to Jerusalem. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's entered the city to announce God's righteous judgment against His own people who have turned away from Him and who have turned to idols. And because Jesus makes this announcement, they end up murdering Him. 
they murder Jesus. But in murdering Jesus, this prophet, this Messiah, this one who is God in the flesh, they actually activate God's plan of salvation for the whole world. Jesus dies at the hands of sinners, but He also dies for sinners to take the punishment sinners deserve. And every episode in these chapters here, Mark 11 through 14, will show us Jesus is the love of God in flesh. And Jesus is the truth of God in flesh. These chapters will show us why His own people crucified Him. Yes, He came in love and He came speaking truth. But in doing so, He provoked them, He offended them, He convicted them, He challenged them. And they just couldn't handle it. They could not bear His presence. And so they had to kill Him. Jesus came to Jerusalem, you could say, looking to pick a fight. He came looking for a fight with the Jewish leadership because His vision for Israel and indeed His vision for the Kingdom of God was diametrically opposed to their vision for these things. And as we go through these chapters, we will see that. In these chapters, three times Jesus goes to the temple on three successive days. And each time He goes into the temple, His conflict with the Jewish leadership escalates. The temple indeed becomes the key place of confrontation because Jesus has come to replace the temple. The temple is so central to Israel's identity. It's really the heartbeat of who Israel is as the covenant people. It's the core of Israel's identity. But Jesus has come to upstage the temple, to replace the temple, to do in reality what the temple could only do in symbol and shadow. The temple and the priesthood and the animal sacrifices could only symbolize what Jesus has come to accomplish. And so once Jesus accomplishes His mission, the temple must be destroyed and replaced by Jesus and His church. So at the beginning of this chapter, Mark 11, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And how does He come? Not in pomp and circumstance, riding on a war steed, but He comes in humility, lowly, and riding on a colt, an animal more fit for a child or even a hobbit, it would seem. He comes in humility, but the people acclaim Him as King. What does He do? He comes into the city and He goes straight to the temple and He inspects it in Mark 11, 11. See, Jesus is not a tourist who has come to see the sites and visit the landmarks. He's not on a sightseeing mission. He's come as a king who has been away but has now returned to inspect his holdings and to see how the stewards are doing managing his property. The next day as he's passing into the city, he curses a fruitless fig tree. And then in Mark 11.15, he enters the temple and he shuts down all its operations. He drives out those who are buying and selling in the temple. He shuts down the money changers. He interrupts the sacrifices. See, He's not coming to, to cleanse or to reform the temple. It's past that. Rather, in this action, He's showing that the temple is about to become obsolete. And so His actions in the temple are a kind of prophetic foreshadowing of what's to come. The final interruption of the sacrificial system. Indeed, He's foreshadowing the temple's very destruction. 
And it's obvious this enraged the Jewish officials, the Jewish leaders. They got so mad they wanted to destroy Him. I think after Jesus cleansed the temple and interrupted the temple service in this way, His fate was probably sealed. Think about this. This was an incredible act. An incredibly subversive act of, you could say, political and religious vandalism in the eyes of the Jewish leadership. Imagine if somebody went into the United States Capitol building and started overturning congressmen's desks and shutting everything down so bills couldn't be discussed or laws passed and drove everybody out from the building. We'd call that person some kind of terrorist. And if that person went on to say that the Capitol building was going to be destroyed so that not one stone of that building would be left upon another, there's going to be this catastrophic nation-ending, era-ending judgment that's going to fall upon the Capitol building, we'd probably say that man needs to be arrested. He's being seditious. He needs to be arrested and punished and perhaps even executed because he is a threat to national security. Now ratchet that up about 50 notches and that's how the Jews viewed Jesus' action in the temple. They saw Him as subversive, subverting their established order, and indeed blasphemous. How can anybody come in and interrupt the worship of God, the sacrificing of the animals in the temple? It's subversive and it's blasphemous. But Jesus isn't done. On the next day, He comes back into town and as He's moving from Bethany into the city, Peter notices that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed has completely withered overnight. And of course, we're to see that as a symbol. It symbolizes Israel, fruitless and now ripe for judgment. And then in chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus enters the temple again and He begins to have extensive debates. He teaches, but He also debates and engages in controversy with the Jewish leaders. Jesus knows all their pressure points and He squeezes each one. They try to trap Him, but each time He is victorious in debate and He silences His accusers. Finally, in Mark 13, as He's coming out of the temple for the last time, He gives a detailed prophecy to His disciples of how the temple will be destroyed within a generation. And this is it. That was the last straw. At the beginning of chapter 14, the scribes and Pharisees plot to have Him executed at Passover by the end of the week. They concoct a murderous plan and set it in motion. And we know how that goes. Jesus is arrested. He's tried in a kind of kangaroo court. And He's put to death. That's Mark 11 and following. Now today, what I want to focus on is a key piece in this larger narrative. Mark 11, verses 20 to 26. We're going to pick up with the disciples' astonishment that this leafy fig tree, this tree that had been leafy just the day before, has now withered. It's dried up from its roots because Jesus cursed it. They notice this. They're astonished at this. And Jesus responds by teaching them about prayer. And He teaches them about prayer in a twofold way. He teaches them about imprecation and about grace. The grace that must characterize our lives and our hearts as we stand and pray before God, but also imprecation, how we must pray for judgment. See, that's really what the word imprecation means. It's a word of judgment. It means asking God to come and judge or curse. And you think, ah, that doesn't really sound like Jesus. 
Jesus is instructing his disciples to, to pray for cursing and judgment on enemies? That, that sounds so harsh and so mean and so politically incorrect. Well, I don't think it's mean or harsh unnecessarily. I think if you look at this in context, uh, it makes perfect sense. These imprecations are really pleas for justice. Look at what Jesus says here. He says to his disciples, have faith in God. In other words, if you trust God, you can curse fig trees too. <laughs> you can try this at home. What I've done with the fig tree, you can do as well. Of course, it's not really about fig trees. That's not really the issue. The fig tree is symbolic. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, for assuredly, so this is connected to just what went right before. For assuredly, whichever of you says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt, but believes in his heart. In other words, if you're praying with faith, those things he says will be done. Whichever of you says to this mountain, be cast into the sea. If you pray in faith without doubting, you will get what you ask for. Jesus says, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Now picture this here. Picture the scene. Jesus is walking with his disciples from Bethany. He was probably spending the night at Lazarus' home in Bethany each night, not in the city of Jerusalem. So he's walking with his disciples from Bethany towards Jerusalem, headed for the temple. They're beginning that incline that ascent as you get close to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, whoever says to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Well, what mountain is he talking about? It has to be, it just has to be the temple mountain. They're walking towards that mountain. They're walking towards Mount Moriah. Or actually the whole the, 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 the broader area called Mount Zion. Mount Moriah is actually the, the mountain the temple was on. It's the place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. That's where the temple was built, on that high place. They're looking right at that mountain as Jesus says these words. This mountain is the temple. It's the temple mountain. And for that mountain to be cast into the sea is for the temple to be destroyed. In fact, we can take this one step further. I'm not going to prove this to you, but if you look in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, you see that just as the mountain is identified with Israel's temple, so the sea is identified symbolically with the Gentiles. The raging, foaming sea. The out-of-control waters represent the Gentile nation. So really, this prayer for the mountain to be cast into the sea is a prayer for Gentiles to overwhelm and dismantle Israel's temple. Now you need to know this did happen. This is exactly what happened. Forty years later, a generation later, in 70 A.D., the Roman armies, these Gentile armies, the sea, did encircle the temple. They encircled the temple mountain and they completely destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They wiped it off the face of the earth. If anyone prayed for the temple mountain to be cast into the sea, they did receive what they asked for. Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. There's another question here we need to ask. Because this, this must have been shocking to the disciples. One of many shocking things Jesus says. I'm sure they didn't fully understand it at first. Why would any Jew in Jesus' day want to pray against the temple? The temple, after all, was central to Israel's identity. 
What made Israel Israel in a way was having the temple, the presence of God in her midst, the priesthood and the sacrifices. The temple was the core of Israel's identity and, and is what set her apart as God's special people, the covenant nation. Well, I'm sure when Jesus says these words right at that moment, the disciples probably could not fathom a reason why they would pray for the temple's destruction. But soon, they would have a number of reasons. Let me spell out some of those reasons for you. First, Jesus is about to be sacrificed on the cross. That's going to happen at the end of this week. And when Jesus dies on the cross as a sacrifice for His people, the animal sacrifices taking place in the temple will be unnecessary. Once the reality comes, the shadows disappear. The shedding of Jesus' blood means the shedding of animal blood will no longer be necessary. Indeed, the shedding of Jesus' blood will do what the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats could not do. The shedding of bulls and goats' blood could not really atone for sin. But when Jesus is offered up as the perfect sacrifice on the cross, when His blood is shed, He will make atonement for the sins of His people. On the cross, Jesus will bring that whole system of sacrifice to an end. Jesus is the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priesthoods, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The cross is the end point of that system. It's the fulfillment of that system. Once Jesus dies on the cross, there's no more need for the temple and its sacrifices. Well, second, we can say this. This is another thing the disciples will soon learn. The temple building has to give way to the people temple. The temple building in Jerusalem has to give way to the people temple of the church. If you go read through the letters of the New Testament, you will find repeatedly the apostles saying that the church is now the true temple of God. The church is now the place where God dwells. And all those things that the Israelites would go to the temple to get... The forgiveness of sins, the teaching of God's Word, a meal with God, an experience of God's presence. All of those things we now find by gathering as the church. See, from 30 A.D. roughly to 70 A.D., there were two temples, each vying for that claim to be God's true house, each claiming to be the true temple. There was that stone and wood temple in Jerusalem, and there was the temple made of people, made of living stones, the church. Which is the true temple? So much of the New Testament is written to answer that very question. In 70 AD, God answered it definitively. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, which meant only one temple was left standing. The temple of the church. The church is God's people temple. A temple made of living stones. The true temple, His house forever. Third, because the Jews turned the temple into a badge of national superiority rather than a base of mission to the nations, the temple actually stood in the way of what Jesus commanded His disciples to do. What does Jesus command His disciples to do right before He ascends into heaven? He says, go and preach the Gospel in every nation. Go and make the nations my disciples. The temple actually, as long as it stood in Jerusalem, in some way served as an obstacle to that mission. 
The temple in Jerusalem made it appear that the Jews alone were God's people, that perhaps Gentiles had to convert and become Jews themselves in order to enter into covenant with God, to have the full privileges of membership in God's people. The temple made it look like the Jews had a monopoly on God's presence and on God's gifts. That was never the case. But the Jews certainly treated the temple that way. They acted that way many times. They boasted in the temple and looked down on the Gentile nation. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the disciples know they must go to all nations with the Gospel. They must build a new temple out of the raw materials of sinners who have come to faith in Christ from every nation. They must go proclaim the Gospel all across the face of the globe. And your nationality and your ethnicity and your skin color and your family background are no longer any kind of issue at all in terms of your relationship with God. They certainly can't keep you from God. Everyone from every place and every nation is welcomed into this new temple by faith. And you don't have to travel to Jerusalem to get near to God. Wherever two or three gather, there is Jesus as the Shekinah glory in their midst. There's the true temple, a manifestation of the true temple. So the temple in Jerusalem was really an obstacle to the global mission of the church for as long as it stood. The end of the temple in Jerusalem is not the end of prayer. Rather, it is the inauguration of a new temple that is truly a house of prayer for all nations. And then finally, there is the fact that just as the temple leadership had Jesus crucified, it was the temple's leaders who were behind most of the persecution of the apostles and the other early Christians. And to see this, all you have to do is read the book of Acts. And what do you find? You find non-Christian Jews, Jews who have rejected Jesus as their promised Messiah, these non-Christian Jews, especially the temple leadership, persecutes ruthlessly Christian Jews, and Christian Gentiles. You see this recorded in the book of Acts. The first big persecutor of the church was not the Roman Empire. In fact, a lot of times the Roman Empire actually protected the church from her Jewish persecutors. And for that reason, because this Jewish leadership served to persecute the church and oppress the church, for this reason, the early Christians were fully justified in praying against the temple. That God would cast that mountain into the sea. See, when they prayed that way, when they asked God to cast this mountain into the sea, they were simply asking God to act in justice. To deliver them from the hands of their persecutors and their oppressors. And again, I think this is exactly what the early Christians did. This is at least one layer of meaning. There's more to it than this, but this is one of the layers of meaning, I think, in Revelation chapter 8. Revelation 8, what do we see? We read it this morning. The prayers of the saints ascend like incense. In chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and then as a result, a number of things happen, but in chapter 8, verse 8, a great mountain is thrown into the sea. And at least one aspect of that, that's, that's probably at least partially best understood as a description of 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem and brought the temple order to an end. Now, that's what I think Jesus is teaching here when he speaks of this mountain being cast into the sea. But I think there are a number of objections. There are a number of objections 
raised against these so-called imprecatory prayers. You need to know this is not just Jesus here doing this out of nowhere. If you look at the Psalms, you'll find the Psalms are full of what we call imprecatory prayers or imprecatory songs. Songs or prayers against enemies for God to come and judge the wicked who are oppressing the righteous or oppressing the poor in some way. This is a very common thing in Scripture. It happens again and again. But there are objections to this. There are objections to Christians praying this way. And there are objections to God answering these prayers. But look at what Jesus does next. Because He actually deals with the biggest objection right here in this text. It might feel like this is an abrupt change of subject, but actually it's not. Jesus goes on to say, And when you stand praying... Okay, so as you are standing, as you're in the midst of praying for judgment on those who are persecuting the church and opposing her mission to the nation, as you're praying against the mountain as it stood in Jerusalem or any other mountain that stands in the way of God's kingdom, when you stand praying in this way, if you have a claim against anyone, forgive him that your your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespass. Jesus cuts from imprecation to grace. From asking God to judge to granting forgiveness. Now do not miss the connection here. Look at the link here. Who were the disciples praying against when they prayed for the mountain to be cast into the sea? They're enemies. They're persecutors. Who are they supposed to forgive when they pray this way? Obviously, they're enemies. They're persecutors. Jesus is saying, look, yeah, you're going to have enemies and you're going to pray against those enemies. But if you want your imprecations against your enemies answered, then you must forgive your enemies. Even while you pray against them, even while you pray for God to judge them, you must not hold their sins against them. You must forgive them. At the very moment the disciples are asking God to judge their enemies, they are also to be offering forgiveness in their hearts to their enemies. And I think that puts a whole different spin on what it means to pray in an imprecatory way. Yes, these are prayers for judgment. But they are not prayers for some kind of personal score settling. They're not personally vindictive or petty. They're not vengeful or spiteful. The one who would pray against his enemies must have already forgiven his enemies. Which means he is refusing to take vengeance on his enemies himself and he is instead leaving vengeance to the Lord. When there is real injustice, raw injustice in the world, you can either take matters into your own hands and try to settle the score yourself and take vengeance yourself, or you can refuse to take vengeance and you can forgive the injustices done against you and you can ask God to do something about it. Jesus is saying here His disciples must take the second of those two paths. This is not something personal. It's not about settling scores in a personal way. Imprecatory prayers are not like you know, the Christian version of having a voodoo doll where you stick your enemies with pins you know, to bring them personal pain. That's not the idea. Rather, the idea is this. We are praying for God's kingdom to come. We are praying for God's justice to be revealed. We're praying for God's kingdom to come, which means Satan's kingdom must fall. We're praying for God's kingdom to rise, which means Satan's kingdom must sink. 
You can't have victory for God's kingdom without defeat for Satan's kingdom. See, the mountains in view here, yes, I mean, when Jesus originally utters this, it's all about the temple mountain. But it can become any obstacle or enemy of God's kingdom and God's people, any who would oppress and persecute His church. But understand, the mountains in view, the mountains we pray against, are not personal enemies, they are kingdom enemies. And it's very, very dangerous if we don't make that distinction. It's been said, you know you've turned God into an idol when all of your enemies must be God's enemies. That's not the case. We're not talking about personal enemies here. We're talking about enemies of the kingdom of God. This is why in Luke 9, James and John want to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village that has rejected their preaching. But Jesus rebukes them. Jesus does not encourage them to call down fire from heaven. You might think He would after seeing this passage in Mark 11. But Jesus says to them, you don't know what spirit you are of. In other words, you don't have a forgiving spirit at this moment. And so, if you were to call down fire from heaven on God's enemies, you would get consumed as well. Because you're on the wrong side of that line because you're not forgiving. See, when James and John asked to call down fire from heaven on this village, they were being vindictive. They did not combine their pleas with judgment for forgiveness. And besides that, I'm not sure those prayers could have been appropriate anyway. It's not like that village persecuted them. They had no reason to utter imprecations against that village beyond their own offended pride. It's like they just wanted to settle a score and strike back at those who had rejected their teaching. And so Jesus rejects their plea. He does not answer their imprecation. As with everything, of course, Jesus is the proper model here. Jesus can curse. Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree. And we've seen what that means. He's praying an imprecation against those who are preparing to crucify Him. God's faithless, idolatrous people. But then what does Jesus do as He actually hangs on the cross? How does He pray? He forgives His crucifiers. And we know that because He asks His Father to forgive them too. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He doesn't call down more curses on their heads. He calls on the Father to forgive them. Jesus' command to pray against this mountain, the temple mountain that would persecute the church, and we can say by implication any mountain that would attack the saints and persecute God's people, this is not at all inconsistent with other commands Jesus gives us. Commands like, bless those who curse you and love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. When Jesus prays, this mountain will be cast into the sea. In effect, He is saying, don't take vengeance into your own hands. Leave vengeance to the Lord. Trust the Lord to deal with your enemies. You forgive your enemies and you entrust their judgment to God. Now, I'll tell you, a lot of Americans don't like this. You know, Again, it's, it's politically incorrect uh, to talk this way. How dare Jesus tell His disciples to pray for judgment? How dare Christians ask God to judge those who oppose the church? But I would say this, I think this is why many Americans have such a hard time with this. The only reason this doesn't appeal to us 
is because for so many of us in our culture, in our society, life is basically comfortable. We live comfortable, easy lives. The reality is 99% of Americans, including Christians, live in a kind of bubble where we are insulated from the kinds of evil and suffering and oppression and persecution and injustice that others in other parts of the world have to live with every day. So I would say this, if your life is so cushy that you can't think of any mountains you would ask God to move and cast into the sea, then at least consider the lives of those who don't have it so good and pray these kinds of prayers on their behalf. There are Christians suffering ruthless persecution at the hands of radical Muslims, at the hands of uh, godless governments all over the world. There are mountains all over the world that must be cast into the sea. Mountains that oppose the kingdom of God and attack the saints. But this is what's interesting. You know, if you think about this, how often do we hear about Christians retaliating? You know, when they've been violently persecuted, how often do we hear about Christians resorting to, to violent retaliation themselves? I can assure you, if it was happening, you would be hearing about it 24-7. That's a narrative that our mainstream news media would love to push on us. These violent Christians. You've got Christians who are suffering all over the world. They don't retaliate. Why? They're able to suffer without resorting to violent retaliation for one reason and one reason only. They are trusting God to answer their cries for justice. The suffering saints cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? But they cry out to God precisely because they know God cares about them and God cares about justice. And He will act sooner or later. We don't have to retaliate in violence when we've been wrong. We can wait patiently for God to act on our behalf. Somebody might say, oh, if you pray these prayers of judgment on enemies, that's going to make you a violent person. I would say it's actually just the opposite. This is the one thing that can release you from the need to be violent and retaliate. Is to know that God is going to deal justly with those who persecute and oppress His faithful people. So we must pray this way. We must pray for God's Justice, which means praying against injustice. In fact, we're going to do that this morning in our time of corporate prayer. Uh, we've got a litany we're going to pray this morning. That litany includes imprecations. I want you to notice that this morning when we pray it in just a few minutes. We're going to pray against all who in wickedness lead the church astray with false teaching and immoral living. We're going to pray against those who corrupt our land by doing, approving, and promoting things that God's Word calls abominations. We're going to pray against those who perpetuate injustice and oppression. We're going to pray against those who do murder and live by deceit. And I would even say in the Lord's Prayer when we pray each week, Thy kingdom come, we're praying this as well. Again, God's kingdom can't come unless it is at the expense of Satan's kingdom. God and Satan are fighting over the same territory, the same souls, the same cultures. We pray for God's kingdom. We pray against Satan's kingdom. 
And let me tell you, it makes no sense to say that we oppose violence and we oppose oppression and we oppose injustice. But then, no, I don't want you to pray against those things. That makes no sense whatsoever to say, I really want to see the world changed. I really want to see the world become a more just place. I really want to see those who do violence and shed innocent blood. I want to see them stop. You know, to say all of that, that's what you want. That's what you want to see. But then to refuse to pray for those things. To refuse to pray against those kinds of evils. We need to understand prayer is power. Prayer is power. Indeed, it is the most potent weapon in our arsenal against wickedness and injustice. It is prayer more than anything else, anything else we can do, that changes the world. And the world does need to be changed. Have you noticed that about the world lately? The world needs to be changed. The world needs the church's mountain-moving prayers now more than ever. Where are some of the mountains that need moving, that need to be cast down into the sea? I've already mentioned this one. What about radical Islam? Anybody got a good solution for ISIS? It doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like anybody's got an easy solution for the problem of ISIS. ISIS is shedding innocent blood of Christians and others. All throughout the Middle East, they would love to spread their violence even further. ISIS is geared towards the destruction of the innocent. And they have almost wiped out the ancient Christian population of the Middle East. It's a great tragedy. It doesn't look like there's any straightforward military or political solution, which means we had better pray. What Jesus did did to the fig tree and to the temple, we can do to ISIS. But we've got to pray in faith and we've got to pray with forgiving hearts. Does that sound impossible? How can prayer stop ISIS? Well, it would not be the first time that the church has moved a seemingly immovable mountain even in recent history. I can tell you story after story about this, but I want to take one from recent history because if I tell you one from a thousand years ago, it's easy to dismiss. You remember that thing called the Cold War? You know, A lot of us grew up with it. Soviet communism in Russia not only sought to crush the church It was oppressive for most everyone. But the Soviets were so powerful. They had their nukes. They had a huge army. What could bring them down? What could end the rule of communism in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe? Well, now we look back and we know that communism did fall. Many times Ronald Reagan is given a lot of credit for this, especially with his speech at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin in 1987 when he told Gorbachev to come tear down this wall in Berlin. And I no doubt that was important. But the story behind the story was taking place in Leipzig, Germany. Ironically enough, at St. Nicholas Church in light of last week's sermon. St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig. Through the years of communist domination, saints would regularly gather to pray against it. Indeed, starting in the early 80s, every Monday evening, saints would gather at St. Nicholas Church to pray for peace and against communism. But usually it was only a dozen or so who would gather with the pastor to pray. But then in the fall of 1989, something started to happen. People started gathering by the hundreds and then by the thousands. 
to pray for peace and for the collapse of communism, to pray for freedom for people who are in bondage. These prayer meetings quickly became known to the East German government. They became so large and so East German troops were called in to break up these prayer meetings and eventually they put up roadblocks and stationed armed guards to keep people away. But still they came and they prayed and they prayed. On October 9th, 1989, the government had given orders to open fire on the crowds, but the 8,000 soldiers were no match for the 70,000 who had gathered in the church and the streets to pray. And what went down that day is known in history as the miracle of Leipzig. It's known as the peaceful revolution. On that day, as people cried out to God in prayer, the dam of communism broke. And a month later, the Berlin Wall came down. The mountain was moved. Communism was cast into the sea. A member of the Communist Central Committee said later, we had planned for everything. We were prepared for everything, but not for candles and prayer. The candles and the prayers of God's people brought down the wall. Their prayers cast the mountain into the sea. When we pray this way, they have no countermeasures, no answer. There's no answer on the world's part, on Satan's part, when God's people pray. You may have seen this headline from a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you can read that, but this is from the New York Daily News. The big headline, God isn't fixing this. It's got quotes on the sides from all these politicians calling on people to pray after the recent shootings in California. And there's this headline, God isn't fixing this. In other words, it's to say, you're wasting your time praying. Prayer's not going to change anything. God's not going to fix this. What do God's people have to say to that? We say, yes, God will fix it. Indeed, God alone can fix it. God alone can deal with the injustice and the oppression and the persecution we see all around us. He always has. He's cast huge mountains of evil into the sea in the past, and He will do it again. But for this to happen, we've got to pray. And we've got to pray kingdom-sized, kingdom-shaped prayers. So often our prayers are too small. Too small to really do anything. We don't really ask God to change anything. And so nothing gets changed. We've got to pray kingdom-sized prayers. And kingdom-shaped prayers. We've got to pray boldly against the mountains of evil we see all around us. And we've got to pray with forgiveness in our hearts. Amen.